Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 30, Genesis chapters 31 and 32. In Genesis 31, we saw that things had turned sour between Jacob and his father-in-law, Laban, and even Laban's two daughters, Rachel and Leah, who were Jacob's wives, felt that their father, Laban, had broken trust with them. They, they even accused him of not so much giving them in marriage to Jacob like a joyful father would, but selling them as though they were nothing but slaves. And they assumed, undoubtedly, correctly, that their father had no intentions of seeing to it that any part of the family estate would ever become theirs. And as a result of this, Rachel stole the family gods from her father, Laban, and took them with her as Jacob and his family snuck away while Laban was off tending some sheep. Now, it was the custom of that day that the family member who physically possessed those little god idols was to be the inheritor of the family wealth and power. Jacob had no idea that Rachel had done this thing. Let's start reading today at verse 33 in Genesis 21. Verse 33 No, verse 33 in Genesis 31. Okay? Let me put it the other direction. Genesis chapter 31, verse 33. Page 34. <laughs> We're really getting the 30s, aren't we? Alright, if you have the complete Jewish Bible. Okay. Levon went into Yaakov's tent, then into Leah's tent, and into the tent of the two slave girls, but he didn't find them. He left Leah's tent, and then he entered Rachel's tent. Now, Rachel had taken the household gods, put them in the saddle of the camel, and was sitting on them. Levon felt all around the tent, but he couldn't find them. She said to her father, Please don't be angry that I'm not getting up in your presence, but it's the time of my period. So he searched, but he didn't find the household gods. Then Yaakov became angry, and he started arguing with Levon. What have I done wrong, he demanded. What's my offense that you've come after me in hot pursuit? You felt all around in my stuff, but what have you found of all your household gods? Put it here, in front of my kinsmen and yours, so that they can render judgment between the two of us. I have been with you for these twenty years. Your female sheep and goats haven't aborted their young, and I haven't eaten the male animals in your flocks. If one of your flock was destroyed by a wild animal, I didn't bring you the carcass, but bore the loss myself. You demanded that I compensate you for any animal stolen, whether by day or night. Here's how it was for me. During the day, thirst consumed me, and at night, the cold, my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I've been in your house, I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the one whom Yitzhak fears, had not been on my side, by now you would certainly have already sent me away with nothing. 
God has seen how distressed I've been, how hard I've worked, and last night he passed judgment in my favor. Levon answered Jacob, The daughters are mine, the children are mine, the flocks are mine, everything you see is mine. But what can I do today about these daughters of mine or the children they've born? So now, come, let's make a covenant, I and you. Let, let it stand as a testimony between me and you. Yaakov took a stone and he set it upright as a standing stone. Then Yaakov said to his kinsmen, gather some stones. And they took stones, made a pile of them, and ate there by the pile of stones. Levon called it Yagar Sahuda, all right, pile of witnesses, while Yaakov called it Galid. Levon said, this pile of witnesses between me and you today. This is why it is called Galid and also Hamitzpah. Because he said, may Adonai watch between me and you when we are apart from each other. If you cause pain to my daughters, or if you take wives in addition to my daughters, then even if no one is there with us, still God is witness between me and you. Levon also said to Jacob, here's this pile and here's this standing stone which I have set up between you and me. May this pile be a witness. And may the standing stone be a witness that I will not pass beyond this pile to you. And you will not pass beyond this pile and this standing stone to me to cause harm. May the God of Abraham and also the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. But Yaakov swore by the one his father, Yitzhak, feared. Yaakov offered a sacrifice on the mountain and invited his kinsmen to the meal. They ate the food and spent the whole night on the mountain. Well, Jacob and his family made their break for freedom. But Laban soon finds out they're gone. And he responds by mounting a posse and going after them. And during his search for them, God comes to Laban in a dream. And he warns him not to speak either good or bad to Jacob. This simply means that Laban's not to try to harm Jacob. Right? But it points out something kind of interesting here. God speaks to the unbelieving. Well, Laban and his men catch up to Jacob in the northern part of Canaan in an area called the Galid, up in this area here. You can see where they're starting from. Way, way up north here, to give you an idea, right where I have this laser pointer is Damascus, Syria. All right. So they were still pretty high up in the land of Canaan when, when, he, when uh, Levon caught up with them. And of course, Laban, never at a loss for a good lie, all right, scolds Jacob for leaving in secret, thus not permitting Levon to throw him a goodbye party. All right, and give his daughters and grandchildren the proper goodbye. Mm-hmm. Sure. All right. And of course, immediately upon those insincere words of greeting, Levon inquires about his missing gods, which is the real crux of the matter. All right. And Jacob says, hey, if you can find them, all right, not only are you welcome to them, but the person who took them is going to be executed. Uh-oh. Rachel's now in grave danger, and she knows it, but Jacob doesn't. But Rachel hides them 
from her father by sitting on them so that when he searches her tent he doesn't find them she tells her father that she isn't standing up because she's on her monthly cycle and her father doesn't demand she stand up so he can search not because he feels sensitive towards her current condition but rather it's because he would become ritually impure by coming into contact with her or whatever it was she's sitting on. I mean, the concept of a woman being unclean and transmitting that ritual uncleanness while on her cycle is something that Moses will be instructed about 500 years into the future. But it was also a law and tradition that was already in existence amongst almost all cultures long before Moses, long before Jacob. Okay? That Rachel would intentionally risk transmitting her uncleanness to those gods she was sitting on was unthinkable to Levon. So it apparently didn't even enter his mind that such would be a possibility. Now Jacob, having no idea that Rachel actually has those idols, now is really angry at Laban's accusation, especially after a thorough search fails to produce them. Jacob has had it. He now lays in to Laban, explaining that 20 years of servitude ought to be quite enough, thank you, for two wives and some sheep. All right? And he tells Laban he, has, he was well aware that Levon had been cheating him all along and constantly changing the terms of the, of the deal. Jacob's now in his, in his 90s. Okay. Now, Levon's answer is rather typical Levon. Everything you have is mine. And he'd never been able to accept the idea that Jacob's wealth, which had grown primarily from the high birth rate of miscolored animals Levon didn't want in the first place had actually equaled or exceeded his own flocks. Right. However, in a rather ingenuous display of graciousness, Levon says, eh, let's bury the hatchet. All right, since we certainly don't want to be an enemy to one another and he certainly didn't want to be an enemy to his own daughters. So basically, what they do is make a treaty with one another, not, not to war, and they put up a pile of stones as both a testament, or as they say, a witness to their agreement, and a sort of boundary marker. Right? And, and they have the, then they end it all up with the typical covenant meal um, to seal the agreement. And by the way, the set, setting up of standing stones, or stone piles or columns, as boundary markers is of course still in use today. I can remember going uranium prospecting with my father when I was a small child. All right? And we would occasionally run across a pile of stones out there in the desert. All right? um, or my father would, that little machine would go off and make all kinds of clicks and so He'd pile up his own stone and try to make a claim on a stone to make a claim on the territory. So that same—that's what this idea is all about. It's the same idea brought forth to today. Now, though this passage doesn't go into full detail about the covenant procedure, it does mention a sacrifice, which of course would have had would have been a clean animal 
that had been cut up, pieces divided into two piles with Jacob and Levon walking between the pieces as a sign of agreement. And of course, no covenant is complete without a sworn oath, which is what we read in verse 53. Well, an interesting little aside um, to all this is that the scriptures, sorry, the scriptures tell us that they each named the pile of stones, the boundary markers, according to their native language. Yagar Sahaduta right, is a form of Chaldean. Gali is Hebrew. They both mean pile of witnesses. Right? Now the primary terms of this treaty are that Jacob is to treat Laban's daughters well and that he's to take no other wives. All right? Jacob adhered to this agreement. This whole thing amounted to saving face all right, for, for Laban in the end. Well, let's move on now to Genesis chapter 32 as we continue this story. Let's uh, read all of Genesis chapter 32. Early in the morning, Laban got up, kissed his sons and daughters, and blessed them. Then Levon left and he returned to his own place. Yaakov went on his way and the angels of God met him. When Yaakov saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And he called that place Mahanaim. Yaakov sent messengers ahead of him to Esau, his brother, toward the land of Seir in the country of Edom with these instructions. Here is what you were to say to my lord Esau. Your servant Yaakov says, I have been living with Levon and have stayed until now. I have cattle, donkeys, and flocks, and male and female servants. I'm sending to tell this news to my Lord in order to win your favor. The messengers returned to Yaakov saying, We went to your brother Esau and he's coming to meet you. And with him are 400 men. Yaakov became greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people flocks, camels, animals, into two camps, saying, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, at least the camp that is left will escape. Then Yaakov said, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Yitzhak, Adonai who told me, return to your country and your kinsmen, and I will do you good. I'm not worthy of all the love and faithfulness you've shown your servant since I crossed the Yarden on my, with only my staff. But now I've become two camps. Please rescue me from my brother Esau. I'm afraid of him. I'm afraid he'll come and attack me without regard for mothers or children. You said, I will certainly do you good and make your descendants as numerous as the grains of sand by the sea, which are so many they can't be counted. Well, he stayed there that night. Then he chose from among his possessions the following as a present for Esau, his brother. 200 female goats and 20 males, 200 female sheep and 20 males, 30 milk camels and their colts, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 colts. He turned them over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, cross over in front of me and keep a space between each drove and the next one. And he instructed the servant in front, when Esau my brother meets you and asks you, Whose servant are you? Where are you going? Whose animals are these? Then you're to say, 
They belong to your servant, Jacob, and they are a present that he has sent to my lord, Esau. And Jacob himself is just behind us. He also instructed the second servant and the third and all that followed the droves, when you encounter Esau, you speak to him in the same way. And you're to add, and there just behind us is your servant Jacob. For he said, I will appease him up first with the present that goes ahead of me. And then after that, I will see him myself and maybe he'll be friendly toward me. So the present crossed over ahead of him and he himself stayed that night in the camp. He got up that night, took his two wives, his two slave girls and his 11 children and he forded, forded the Yabok. He took them and sent them across the stream, then sent his possessions across and Yaakov was left alone. Then some man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when he saw that he did not defeat Yaakov, he struck Yaakov's hip socket so that his hip was dislocated while wrestling with him. And the man said, let me go because it's daybreak. But Yaakov replied, I won't go unless you uh, won't let you go unless you bless me. And the man asked, what is your name? And he answered, Yaakov. Then the man said, from now on, you will no longer be called Yaakov, but Israel. Because you have shown your strength to both God and men and have prevailed. Yaakov asked him, please tell me your name. But he answered, why are you asking about my name? And blessed him there. Yaakov called the place Peniel. Because I have seen God face to face, yet my life is spared. As the sun rose up upon him, he went on past Peniel limping at the hip. This is why, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the thigh muscle that passes along the hip socket, because the man struck Jacob's hip at its socket. Well, in order to place what occurs here in proper context, allowing us to draw the more realistic mental picture of Jacob's life, we need to understand that Jacob was a very elderly man. And depending on whose chronology you adhere to, he was anywhere from around 90 to close to 100 years old. Depending on your version of the Bible, the first three verses can be labeled a little differently as to when one verse ends and the next begins, but it doesn't matter because the text reads essentially the same. And this chapter begins with Levon saying goodbye to his two daughters, Rachel and Leah, and to all of his grandchildren. Most Bibles will say he kissed his sons and daughters goodbye. Right? It was common terminology in that era um, to refer to male grandchildren as sons. All right, and that's what's being referred to here as his grandchildren. Then we encounter a really strange thing. Okay, it says the angels of God met him. They met Jacob. Now for sure, the angels of God that are, met, that are mentioned here are exactly that. Because the original Hebrew says Malachim Elohim. All right? messengers 
plural, messengers of Elohim, God. But we're not really given any info, more information than that. Why were they there? Right? Perhaps it was just an assurance that Jacob was back in the promised land, or the angels were a more visible presence confer, uh, confirming that God was indeed with him by means of his angels. Now it's interesting to note that upon Jacob's journey to leave the land of Canaan to go north so many years earlier, Jacob encountered angels at Bethel. Okay. So upon his journey to return into the land, he also encounters angels. In any case, Jacob was impressed enough that he named the place Mahanaim, meaning two camps, and we'll find out in a minute why. Now verse 3 gives me an opportunity to kind of accent a point that I made a few weeks ago. And that concerns the word malach, messenger. And I told you that in strict Hebrew, when malach is used by itself, it denotes a messenger of some sort. In fact, it's usually, in the Bible, a human messenger. Okay. But when the word Yahweh or Elohim or Adonai or some other title of God is attached to Malach, then it is speaking of heavenly messengers, spirit beings, angels. So in verse 1, we definitely have heavenly messengers, angels. Here in verse 3, we see that Jacob sent some Malachim, right, messengers, ahead to find Jacob's brother Esau. And we can be sure these are human messengers because the word Malachim is used without attaching any Hebrew word for God to it. Okay. Now for Jacob, he has just completed this rather unpleasant encounter with his father-in-law, Levon. But now he's got to face his brother Esau who has sworn to kill him for swindling him out of his blessing. Well, the messengers come back to Jacob. And it's kind of a good news, bad news report. The good news is, yep, they found Esau and they gave him his present and his message. The bad news is that Esau didn't indicate anything more than he was coming all right with 400 armed men. Oh, this scared Jacob right to his core. Um, he had not long ago felt Levon's wrath and dealt with it, but you know, right was on his side in that case. How about this situation with Esau? Okay. Esau was the recipient of wrongdoing by Jacob, deceit of the highest level that robbed Esau of what both of them felt was Esau's birthright, and Jacob had to wonder if time had soothed Esau's desire to kill him, or maybe not. Now Esau's response to these messengers must have convinced Jacob that his worst fears were about to be realized. Because Jacob ordered that his family and all his possessions be divided up into two groups and that he would stay with one, hoping that if Esau extracted his revenge on Jacob 
perhaps the second group located somewhere else would survive. It was the dividing of his group into two groups, two camps, okay, from which the name of this place would come, Bahanaim, two camps. Okay? And of course, now that all the deceit and the guilt of his life was suddenly manifesting itself okay, in a situation from which there didn't appear to be any escape, Jacob now falls on his knees before God and he prays. Now how often we found ourselves running ahead of God or lagging behind or just plain rebellion, rebelling or doing wrong and then asking God to rescue us from the natural consequences of those sins. Jacob was doing exactly that right, right here. And at the same time, we see how time and his experience of walking with God have changed him. He acknowledges that he deserves nothing of the wondrous bounty and protection that the Lord God has provided for him. Now the area that Jacob encamped is well known today. It's called the Yabok. And it lies east. This is the Jordan River here. Here we have the Dead Sea. The Jordan River. It lies east of the Jordan River. It's kind of a midpoint between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee, which is just off the map here to the north. And the, the Jordan was clearly visible from from where he was. I mean, he could see it quite easily. Um, and this was a beautiful place that he was at. It was lush and green and fertile. And the, the Bible tells us that Jacob sent several droves of flocks ahead of him, accompanied by his messengers, his emissaries, if you would, that were to offer these flocks as a gift of repentance to Esau. And the amount of the gift was really quite enormous. It consisted of 550 animals. I mean, it was truly a gift fit for paying tribute to a king. Then Jacob took his immediate family, crossed the Jabok, or the Yabok, depending on whether you want to pronounce it in English or Hebrew, and then parted company with them, apparently planning to face Esau alone. Well, it's here that we encounter one of the stranger episodes in all the Bible. Suddenly, without warning, Jacob finds himself pounced on and wrestling with some man, it says. Now the Hebrew word for this man is ish, I-S-H, ish, or better, ish. Which can mean man or husband or even a mighty man or a great man. But the thing to get here is that this man at first seemed to Jacob to be flesh and blood. Okay? We're told this wrestling match went on all night long. And when the man all right, concluded Jacob wasn't going to give up, he dislocated Jacob's hip with but a touch. So here in verse 25, it says Jacob, Jacob wrestled with an ish, a man. But in verses 29 and 31, it is made clear that this being is divine. 
because Jacob says, I have seen Elohim face to face. Hosea 12.4 speaks of this encounter in retrospect. All right? And clearly states that this was a heavenly being who Jacob was fighting with. So why this reference? First saying Jacob's opponent was a man, and then saying it was Elohim. Well, let's talk about angels for just a moment. There's been so much confusion in Christianity as to just what an angel is and what the appearance of one portends and so on. Now, the first thing to understand is that in its most foundational meaning, an angel is first and foremost, now follow me on this, a bearer of the divine word of God. First and foremost, an angel is the bearer of the divine word of God. An angel brings a divine message from God and presents it to somebody, or he carries out a divine instruction from God. Now today we have the expression, don't kill the messenger. Meaning, look, the person who's telling me something of importance isn't presenting me with his own words or even his own view. He's just been hired right, to bring me the instruction from someone higher than himself. He's not even responsible for the content of the message, other than his duty to carefully and accurately deliver it. That's what an angel does. Yet the Bible will use the word malach in a number of contexts, and I think often metaphorically. For instance, in the Bible, even prophets and priests at times are called angels of the Lord. Or more aptly, maybe a better way to think about it, messengers of the divine word. In fact, Haggai and Malachi are referred to in the scriptures what is usually translated as as angels of the Lord. Think about the name, Malachi, Malach. Hmm? Now, were Haggai and Malachi divine spiritual beings? No. But as men who were simply passing on to others God's instructions to mankind, they certainly qualify as being messengers of the divine word of God. Now we'll also see in Holy Scripture the distinctions between the bearer of the divine message, an angel of the Lord, and Yehovah himself. And these distinctions can sometimes be very blurred. We see that, for instance, in the burning bush episode because it says it was the angel of the Lord. Yet Moses kept saying he's speaking directly to God and God was talking to him. It's very interesting. And how about Hagar? All right, out in the desert, who was spoken to by an angel, but she responded directly to God. And we see this in a number of other places in the Bible as well. But you know what? That really shouldn't surprise us or even seem strange because we followers of Yeshua find ourselves faced with that same blurred distinction in trying to comprehend just who Yeshua is. He's a man, 
but he's also God. Okay? I mean, we find that exact scenario here with Jacob as the being he wrestles with is alternately called a man, an ish, all right, and God, Elohim. Okay? I mean, think of this as well. Just follow me closely here. Is not Jesus also called the Word? Is he not? Right. Or in its most complete biblical sense, the divine Word of God. That's what he's called. Okay. Jesus was the bearer of the divine Word, as an angel is. He was the divine Word as God, and he was also flesh and blood human, a man. Okay. Now, if you can fully comprehend all that, see me after class so I can shake hands with the very first person that can. Okay. So all these blurred distinctions of where God leaves off and angels begin or vice versa, here we find in Yeshua the man-God-angel. It's a very interesting scenario and actually one that's not all that unusual in the Bible if we just stop to examine it and if we see the words in Hebrew. Now, Jacob is now disabled by this divine messenger, but he still wouldn't quit wrestling, saying, I'm not going to let you go till you bless me. Obviously, Jacob figured out this was no ordinary man he was grappling with. Now, over the years, I've heard many teachings on this event. I've also heard that this never actually happened, that it's just a fairy tale. I've heard that this was added to the Holy Scriptures many centuries later. I've heard this is all just allegory. Okay, but I'm quite convinced that it's none of the above. Right, this was quite real. What we have here is a scene that we find has, uh, has a certain commonality that we'll find throughout most of the Bible. That is, it was at the same time literal and symbolic. Okay? Symbolic because all believers must go through a time when we wrestle with God over control of our lives. That's just part of the process. Okay? And if we're truly to apprehend that life which God has for us, a time must come when by our own choice and through absolute surrender, we have to leave our tattered history behind and start a new history with God as the Lord of our lives. Okay. Yet invariably, you know, the scars of the past are going to come with us. Okay. And we're going to have to deal with it. Okay. Even more, sometimes we're going to pay a price to leave those rebellious ways behind us and go forward into a new life. That was the case with Jacob. And now he inherited a permanent disability as he crossed over from a foreign place into the promised land. Now, how I wish it was so that when we first recognize our salvation or when after years of having been saved, we finally decide we're going to live it out, that our earthly past could be as dead as our old natures. Too often, well-meaning pastors tell converts that their slates have been cleaned. And what they forget to tell them 
is that although spiritually we're forgiven, that doesn't end the natural consequences of what our sin natures may have caused. And some way or another, we're going to live out the rest of our lives with a limp, regretting our foolishness. Jacob is going to walk with a limp for his remaining days. An inescapable testament to his having fought with God for almost a hundred years until he finally submitted instead of attempting to achieve a balance of power with him. Isn't that what we try to do a lot? Tell you what, God, I'll let you have this part, I'll keep this part, and we'll just kind of work it out. Well, Jacob had always won against men. Right, with his own skills and his own cunning, often mixed with deceit, unfortunately. But when he recognized that what he was wrestling was far more than flesh and blood, he knew he could not win as he always had. And so instead, he just hung on for dear life and asked to be blessed. And like most of us, we cannot seem to arrive at this point until we're broken and disabled. If we take the most literal possible sum of Jacob's name, it means the cunning self-helpful supplanter. Not pretty, not very flattering. All right, and how well it actually characterized Jacob's life up to that point. But because Jacob yielded to God, he now was to have a new destiny, and of course it would be reflected in his new name. Israel, a prince with God. So from here on now, in the biblical narrative, we see a new Jacob. No more does he rely totally on himself, his relying on his fleshly ways. He rests more and more in God's strength. And he will be called Israel. Now I cannot help but recall my Ishmaelite brother, in Christ, Tass's story. Many of you I know have met Tass about his coming to the Lord, about how as a Palestinian fighting against Israel that the Arab armies could never seem to defeat the Jews. That like the average Muslim Arab living today, there was this deepest frustration and anger that leads to this irrational hatred of Israel. Because it was so incomprehensible to him, as it is to most of them today, that 200 million Arabs just cannot seem to finally defeat 6 million Jews. Okay? That the combined Arab armies that dwarfed Israel's were defeated time after time and brought nothing but humiliation to the Arab Muslim world. After coming to Christ... Tass says he suddenly realized why they'd never been able to defeat Israel. He finally understood that the Arabs and Muslims who thought that their enemy was the Jews had actually been fighting God all this time. And when we fight God, there is absolutely no chance of victory on our terms. In the, in the most ironic way, our victory in God has to occur by the defeat of ourselves. It is the strangest thing. 
This is exactly what was happening in this scene with Jacob, and it has happened or will happen to every believer who finally surrenders his will to Jehovah's. Well, let me end this chapter by pointing out something that is in some ways obvious, but in other ways we kind of slide right over it. Take a look at verse 33. It starts by saying, this is why the children of Israel to this day, then it goes on to explain why sinew is removed. Actually, it has become traditionally to be the sciatic nerve. All right, is removed from animals and not eaten as meat. The observation is that redaction has taken place. Okay. The writer of these passages, traditionally said to be Moses, is looking back. Okay. At least part of this was written from the perspective of a time future to when the events of Jacob and the wrestling with this angel took place. And from the viewpoint of a time when a tradition had been developed to remove the sciatic nerve from, from animals to be eaten or sacrificed in honor of that day when Jacob had his hip dislocated as he was given a new name that described his new nature Israel I have to remember biblically as well that name has a much more expanded meaning than what we typically think a name, biblically, speaks of a person's character, who they are, their attributes. Very important principles we read biblical names. Well, let's also remember and tuck it in the back of our minds for all the rest of our study that from a historic point of view, it's at this moment in Genesis 32 verse 29 that the nation of Israel is established right here let's call it a night and we'll get in, into Genesis 33 next week